which you would have seen on Facebook, and the subtitle is The Wisdom of God in the Battlefield of Life. Um, so it's, uh, and, and I'd like to reflect a little bit this morning on uh, Judges chapter 4, and uh, I've, I've kind of been, uh, something I was reading earlier uh, in this month, and it just sort of struck me, really, really stuck out, this particular story from the book of Judges. Now, I quite like this section of the book of Judges. Uh, Judges 4 is kind of, obviously, the book ended between Judges 3 and Judges 5. Um, in Judges 5, of course, is the Song of Deborah, which was until recently thought to be one of the oldest, uh, I guess, written down sections of the Bible, um, dating from 12th century BC, now thought perhaps more than the 7th century BC. That's still pretty old in terms of, of, of source material. So, uh, And then, so you've got Gideon after that, um, which is a fantastic story about how just trusting in God in the battlefield and not in the natural resources that are around us. And then before that, you know, Judges 3, you've got the story of, of uh, Ehud, the left-handed assess- assassin. Uh, again, one of, my, one of my favorite stories in the Bible because of the level of detail that was required. I believe it's actually a verse that talks about when the king was stabbed and his body fat enveloped the sword. And then for some reason, the writers needed to include the phrase, and the dirt came out. <laughs> And uh, so we're going to preach on that another time, I'm sure. But um, in the midst of all of this is Judges chapter 4, the story of Deborah. And uh, now if we go to yeah, slide number 1, we talk about this earlier. We're going to read through this progressively together, pull some things out as we go along. And uh, this, is, this, this is where this idea of chariots of iron comes out. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hazoim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. So the chariots of iron in this represents uh, the visible symbol of oppression, the visible thing that we war against in our lives. You might say, well, this is a story many, many years ago. How on earth does it apply to us living in the New Testament uh, and living under the New Testament covenant? Well, I mean, the, the, the stories in the Judges speak to the nature of God, and God's nature doesn't change. Our understanding of, of God, our ability to perceive His nature, changes and evolves over time because, um, well, He's very, very big and we're very, very small <laughs> in the scheme of things. So our understanding evolves. But... but God in his nature does not change. He cannot change. And uh, so, so Israel found themselves oppressed. What they actually, they said, again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is a recurring theme in Judges where um, Israel cries out to God, gets saved, gets comfortable. And in their, their comfort, uh, they decide, okay, well, thank you very much for, for saving us, but we don't need you anymore, we're going to return to other gods, we're going to return to other evil practices, and uh, before long, the cycle sort of repeats, and this is a theme right the way through Judges. So they, they had gone to a place of comfort, and, you know, at this time, they were oppressed by Sisera and his army, which goes to pains to note, they had 900 chariots fitted with iron, and uh, this represents a huge advantage on the battlefield, obviously, chariots can move, iron is solid. Um, two great advantages. So, in this process, we get introduced to Deborah. And uh, I, I think this is just, uh, Deborah is, is just a fascinating 
character. Not a lot there, but just the context of this. With Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. I'm going to read that one again. <laughs> now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth. Okay, wife implies what? That she's female. <laughs> was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah. So she had her own court. Between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. And I, I love this because, you know, just recently someone sort of... Uh, I was you know, talking with someone, and they said they just read the verse where it's talking about you know, a woman shall not you know, teach, and, uh, and then it's involved dealing with, uh, I guess, what we might call um, issues of, of congregation and culture at that particular time. And, and, and I think anybody who reads that should also be reading Judges 4 and seeing the role that Deborah played in that society in that time, how many hundreds of years before Paul was writing. So I, I think this is sort of like saying you know, we sometimes, as a church, we create pigeonholes for people or genders to, to exist in. And, and I just love the way the Bible comes out and just, just knocks that one right on the head from the early days. That's good. Now, so Deborah was a prophet, okay, and she was also a judge, hence the term, the time of the judges, right? So Israel had no king, they just had a series of judges who would go, hold court, and if you had a dispute, a civil dispute or, or a point of law, you would go up to the judges and have your case judged. And uh, I think there's a couple of things that are really important about this, right? Uh, and there's some of the commentaries we read behind that talk about this. Like, the, the thing that's associated with Deborah is being a prophet and having wisdom. You know, but, but, but it's the proximity to God as a prophet that you know, is allowing her to sort of speak the, the will of God into the situation and the wisdom of God that was allowing her to adjudicate wisely in matters. So who knows, if you're the person in charge and you're obliged to... Uh, I guess, judge a situation. People are going to come up to you with all sorts of claims and counterclaims. They're going to argue a little bit. They're going to have people who can say, you know, well, I support this and I support that. And you have to kind of wade through it all and make sense of it and then come to a fair and reasonable judgment at the end of it all. And that, I think, is, is, is the only way in which one could successfully do that is to possess a high degree of wisdom. And uh, so, so I'm, I'm really talking about here Deborah as, as kind of a representation of um, someone who, who lives and operates in godly wisdom. And through sheer necessity and closeness to God, has to operate in godly wisdom. But what on earth is... So we've got Deborah, wise, prophetess, a fascinating study in early female leadership of the church. And, uh, and to be honest, I haven't really heard much spoken about it in, in, in many, many years of, of, um, of sitting in services. So I was quite, I was quite chuffed. You know, I've, I've been in church my entire life, and I was quite chuffed to come across this one. So uh, it just goes to show, you sometimes feel like you've heard it all before, you've seen it all before, you've read it all before. You probably haven't, is, is what, was what I'm getting at with, uh, <laughs> with that. I'd like to talk a little bit about wisdom. And uh, I, I think this is really important because I think um, I was trying to understand what actually is wisdom. Um, and uh, so I, I went and looked at some definitions of wisdom. And, and, and this is my favorite. I'm going to talk a little bit about worldly wisdom to start off with, as in how we define wisdom. And a little bit about godly wisdom. And we're going to try and put the, put the two together and compare and contrast. It, so what is worldly wisdom? 
I love this definition of worldly wisdom. <laughs> the ability to make the correct decision based on incomplete information. Mm. <laughs> I like that. Right? Isn't that kind of... It helps you understand, but I'm going to get to this because I actually think that's a, that's a fascinating definition and it's also a little bit lame. <laughs> and we'll get to why it's a little bit lame in a, in a moment, right? So the ability to make the correct decision based on incomplete information. What does that tell us about worldly wisdom? Well, firstly, it can only be validated in retrospect. Mm, yeah. Good point. Right? So you, can, you only know if you, you know, that guy is wise, he made a wise decision. Well, when he made the decision, if it had gone the other way, you'd be saying, that guy's an idiot. <laughs> he made such an unwise choice. It can only be validated in retrospect. It's only afterwards you can say that's actually a very wise thing to do. And had things gone a little bit differently, there's a fine line between, in this instance, wisdom and, and, and foolishness. Um, yeah. You could effectively have the same result if you possess all the information. Mm. So you could compensate for a lack of wisdom with complete knowledge. Mm. According to that definition, right? Yes. Is, we're talking about worldly wisdom here. We're not talking about godly wisdom or anything like that. This is just how the world views wisdom according to that definition. Okay. And, and what, this is my point, and, and feel free to disagree with me on this, but uh, you know, like, it's just my thoughts on the matter is that if you consider that to be the case, it's very hard at the time and subsequently to distinguish worldly wisdom from luck. Mm -hmm. Coincidence or good fortune. Mm -hmm. Because in reality, it's just incomplete information. How many times have you been in a situation where it's sort of like 50-50 and you're just like, well, I have to make a decision, so I'm making this decision. And it's only in retrospect or with a large amount of compensatory effort afterwards you realize you made the wrong decision <laughs> that it seems wise. Yep. Okay. So that, that is worldly wisdom. So what's the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom? Well, godly wisdom doesn't ever suffer from a lack of information. Okay? Mm -hmm. let's, let's just go back and unpack that one a little bit. Godly wisdom does not ever suffer from a lack of information. So it says the ability to create the right decision, even with incomplete information, that can't work for God because he, he is not, he's om, omniscient, he's all-knowing. Yeah. Right? If, if the universe was considered to be a gigantic ball of information... Right? God is capable, is, is bigger than the universe, capable of describing all of that information, all of the potential of that information, past, present, and future, all at the same time, all at the same point, without breaking a sweat. That's the kind of size of God we're talking about here. Right? Past, present, future, all the possibilities, your life decisions that you made, that you, did, you know, that you didn't make, the ways that you went, God is capable of knowing them all, understanding them all, and seeing them all, all at the same time, because he's God. Yep. And it's not an issue for him. It's not like he has to take resources away to do that. It's just, boom, done, <laughs> there, all the time. And uh, so God does not suffer from a lack of information. God does not, there are not things, uh, I've heard this before with Robert Norris, right? A thought has never occurred to God, because God is the possessor of all thoughts. Uh, that's good. Right? So, just, it's, it's important, it's important to understand. So what is godly wisdom is putting yourself in proximity to God so that you can draw on the wisdom of God and not just the ability to make a sort of good experience, a sort of good uh, decision, even though the information is not there. Right? Based on a little bit of experience and a little bit of good fortune, basically. Mm. Um, so I think that this is important to understand so, so we have godly wisdom 
And, and how we access that is by proximity to God, right? By getting close, by, by getting to know Him. Um, we're going to talk about, I think it's the next slide. We've gone past Deborah. We're going to go to Israel's battles. So I want to talk about this battle that Israel found themselves in. So they were oppressed, so they to do war. And Israel found themselves needing to do battle. And um, Deborah had said to Barak, right, one of the commanders raised an army, we're going to do battle with Sisera and his chariots. Now, uh, Israel's battles in this instance, I'm, I'm taking it as a bit of a metaphor for the battles that we face, for the oppression that we face in life. Uh, we've just come off a fantastic series. Um, if you're listening on the podcast, go and podcast the rest of the uh, Go and podcast the rest of the series by Dr. Rod. I believe it was Saved, So What? Saved For What? And Saved By What? And um, I've met a lot of people that have been saved. And uh, they just talk about how free their lives are and how all of their burdens have been lifted and things like that. And, and at some point, it kind of, when life catches up with them, there's kind of almost this crash. It's like coming off a sugar high. Yeah. Um, That's good. Life, for better or for worse, is not, well, is not going to be peaches and cream all the time. It's going to be, uh, there are battles that we face, there is oppression that we come under, okay, and, and, and some observations I said was kind of funny. It's like if you're not facing oppression from your enemy or difficulties from your enemy, it's entirely possible you're going in the same direction. Yes. <laughs> so just, 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 just you know, I'm, not, I'm not saying that as a, as a judgmental thing, I'm just saying it's like you need to be constantly aware of the fact that. The battles that we fight are sometimes just a product of, of things that we've done, um, sometimes a product of choices, sometimes they're just a product of people, sometimes it's a product of, of oppression in a, in a, in a, in a spiritual sense, um, sometimes it's just the fact that rain falls on the just and the unjust. And sometimes it's forms because we want to move forward, we want to take ground, either for the kingdom of God, or in business, or in life, or in our personal lives, or in relationships, and we face opposition from that, spiritual, physical, mental, all sorts of things like that. Life is going to have its battles, but we exist in a higher plane, right? We, we, we don't have to see those battles as, as huge obstacles, because we know that they've always been won before us, and what we've got to do is find ourselves in the sweet spot in proximity to God, right? And that's what we're going to get to here. But I love this thing... Uh, you know, with, 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 with this dialogue that happens, and I read this a few times between Barak and Deborah, and uh, I got the wrong, I got the wrong the stick the first time I think, so we'll go through a bit. So, so who, and you know, I call this one, so who's getting the credit, right? So Barak said to her, they're talking about the battle that Deborah raised, so Barak's going to raise an army, okay, and Deborah said, raise an army, go, and I'll get Sisera, and we'll have a fight, and uh, whoever wins, wins. Um, it's not quite what she said, she said, you know, God's gone before you, but Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go. Let's just go back that one. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So she's a leader in Israel. She's told him, raise up an army. He's like, well, look, if you're on board, I'm on board. But if you're not on board, if you're not there, I'm not there. It's just the way it works. And, and then there's this kind of thing. It's like, certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Um, so Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, 
and then Barak went and raised up 10,000 men. And then the end, Deborah also went up with him. So why, why is this sort of important? What's the dialogue here? And, uh, and I was sort of thinking, you know, this is sort of Barak uh, perhaps having a little faith, and not, not, not a little small amount of faith, not necessarily having a large amount of faith in the situation, saying, well, look, you know, I, you know like if, if, if I'm going, you'll come along too. If something happens to me, it's going to happen to you too. And, um, and I think this, uh, I, I think actually it's the wrong end of the stick. The interpretation that's often applied to this, which kind of makes a little bit more sense, um, is Barak, imagine that Barak had identified Deborah as a source of godly wisdom in his world. Mm-hmm. Familiar with Deborah as a judge, familiar with Deborah as someone who operated out of wisdom and created just outcomes because of her proximity <coughs> to God and mm-hmm. place as a prophet. And so he's sitting there going, I'm raising up a conscript army of 10,000. I'm going to face our oppressors who have 900 chariots of iron, the visible symbol of our oppression. If I'm going to get through this, I'm going to need to put godly wisdom as close as possible to my person. (laughs) Right? I'm going to need to be in close proximity to the wisdom of God in this situation because without God's wisdom, right, without his ability to see things from his point of view, we're not going to win. That's mm. good. That's good. Though. Mm. And, and uh, this is this I think is really powerful. It's like so. Deborah went up with Barak to Kadesh, and and then they summoned an army. And Deborah also went up with him. Now the other part of this is who gets the credit, right? Because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And, and, and my first interpretation is that sort of saying. You know, the Lord, you know, it's like the, the embarrassment, you're going to be upstaged by a woman. But actually, that's not what it's saying. Firstly, the woman there is not Deborah, if we read on, that's for another sermon. But I think that because the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera. Right? And so Deborah is saying in this instance, okay, Barak's saying, I need the proximity of God in my world. But he doesn't have a problem with not taking the credit. Yeah, it's good. Oh, that's a good one. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to phase him. It's not an issue. I don't mind. I don't mind not taking the credit. Right? The credit belongs to God. It can belong to Deborah a little bit. He doesn't mind. Right? The outcome is more important than who gets the credit. Yeah. And and I like this one because it's it's Deborah is actually saying you know the, the emphasis here is not you know the Lord will deliver Sisera into my hand. It's the Lord will deliver Sisera. Beyond that. Right? It's the Lord who has gone before. Yeah. It is God who gets the credit. That's good. Because you, the course you are taking, is not stubbornness and saying, oh, if you don't go, I don't go, one in all in, you know. It's, it's actually the course you are taking, placing the wisdom of God in close proximity to your person, is the important part. Yeah, I like that. Right? So you are empowered because of God in your world to have victory. And in response, he gets the credit. <laughs> that's great. For the victory. And that's that's really so what I would so the first um the first point is that we need to take God into godly wisdom into the battlefield of our lives. Okay. So we take godly wisdom into the battlefield of our lives. 
What is... Um, so how do we get godly wisdom? It's a great concept. You know, godly wisdom. I would have done it my life. I'm going to purchase some from mine. <laughs> how do we get it? How do we obtain it? And I was thinking about this, you know, sort of like, there's a lot of sort of pat answers you can give, or you know, you just pray and seek God in your quiet space and read your Bible, and it became a list of rules, really, and things you can do, and God will give you wisdom. The reality is it's about proximity and relationship. Yeah, that's And true. relationship develops, I think, naturally, right, from the time that we spend. So you don't necessarily have to make about a whole stack of rules, it's just time spent. In Sometimes, I love this idea of the, uh, uh, the pointless pursuit of God. It's not saying that pursuing God is pointless. It's saying that pursuit of God without necessarily uh, an objective. Spending time with God without having to feel like you have to get something at the end of it all. Just spending time with Him to kind of affirm your relationship That's good. with Him. Without necessarily putting demands on God, but just saying, look, I just want to be here in your space, in your time, and you do what you want to do, because it's not about my objectives this time. Um, so, I, 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 quite, um, I quite like that. But actually, in James 1, verse 5, right? It talks about, if you want wisdom, if you lack wisdom, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask. Yeah. Ask for it. And I love this part in James 5, who gives generously to all, this is God giving wisdom, gives generously to all, without finding fault. So it's like the faults that you have in your world do not necessarily preclude you from God's generosity, especially when it comes to the issues of wisdom, right? In fact, one could argue that um, you know, that makes sense. God would give wisdom to people who have faults in their lives because Godly wisdom will help you overcome the faults. <laughs> uh, proximity to God will, will make it easy for you to live a life that is, uh, as Dr. Rodman say, fully fulfilled rather than being constrained by the things that, that, that seem to trip you up all the time. And um, so, so just ask. Now, having placed yourself in proximity to God and realize that he's the one that gets the credit. What do we do now? To change. Right. To boldly go. That's that. To go boldly. Boldly go. It's a infinitive, but we'll just we'll cut. make a point. Yeah. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoin, had gone up to Mount Tabor, so raised the army, Sisera summoned from Haroshet Hagoyim to the river Kishon, all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. So uh, Barak, 10,000 men sitting on Tabor, and uh, the river Kishon, Sisera, his men, 900 chariots, right, hurling himself back and forth. And then Deborah said to Barak, so she's there, right, close proximity, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So what are we to do, having placed ourselves in close proximity to God's wisdom in the battlefield? What is the next step in the battlefield of our lives? I actually feel from this, it's like there's actually a rest and a confidence is the next step. So we rest in God, confident that He has gone ahead of us in the situation. And I quite like that. Go, has not the Lord gone ahead of you? In other words, don't wait. He's already there. He's already on the other side of the hurdle, on the other side of the target, on the other side of the goal, right? 
And he has gone before you. He knows where this is going. So step forward with confidence. Rest in his strength. Step forward in confidence. Mm, I love it. That's good. Um, and, and, and it's kind of like, we do all we can. And we, you know, so we've done all we can, physically. We sought God as best we can. And we have to trust him, because it is he who orders our steps. Yeah. Right? And I, I, I just thought I'd have some other scriptures just to try and support this, uh, this idea. Um, so Psalms 37, 23. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation because it actually says something slightly differently to some of the other ones. So, um, and I haven't, I haven't checked it out, but it's such a beautiful way of expressing it. I thought, well, this, this, this reflects a truth. Um, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. And it's the second part of life. He delights in every detail of their lives. Wow. And I, I read that, and again, it's like this whole thing has just been like this boom, things going off left, right, and center. He delights in every detail of their lives. I just love the idea of God sitting up in heaven, delighting in the detail, delighting in the small successes of our lives, right? Uh, some of you know I can be, depending on the, the particular application, very detail-oriented. Um, to the point of, you know, sometimes you get this perfection streak that actually prevents you from getting things done or finished. <laughs> and so, as someone who occasionally delights in details, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting thought that God understands. Yeah. You know, He delights in the small successes in our lives as much as the big successes in our lives. Yeah. You know, He delights when we when we uh, set out to do something and, and we accomplish it, even if it's just a small thing. You know, for me, sometimes it's just you're at the shops and you see a chocolate bar and you just you feel that no. <laughs> you should, you shouldn't, you know, you want to, but you shouldn't. And so you turn away and you make it through the checkout with a chocolate bar and you're like, God's just, yeah! <laughs> Not necessarily because chocolate is evil or chocolate bars are evil or even the food choices we make are evil. But just that, like, that's a small success in our life and God delights in that detail. That's good, I like that. I, I love, I really love that thing. Okay, my favourite, my favourite section of the Bible, I mean, you know, I don't know if you're allowed to have favourites, but I guess I do. Is the attitudes Matthew six, and I love uh, I love the end of it as well. It speaks so much to the, the, the section of life. And Matthew six thirty talks about you know it does have God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire. How how sorry will he not now much more clothe you? Yeah. yeah. Right. And um, will he not much more clothe you. God cares about the grass of the field. How much more does He care about us? And uh, I love the fact that we serve a detail-oriented God, a God who delights in our small successes. And so we can rest in confidence from God that comes from God because He has gone before us and He delights in the detail of our successes. So number one, we take the godly wisdom into the battles that we face. Yep. Number two, right? We rest in God who goes before us in those battles. Now, this next little bit is going to blow your mind a little bit. Go on, keep running. And, and it's going to, it's, it's, it's become obvious. Right? Just, so Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Why would I stop there? 
Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And there's a full stop. There's a full stop. Now, I don't know too much about battles. That well, of this time. <laughs> but there's one thing I do know about battles. Is that where possible, have the high ground. <laughs> because it gives you a better view over your enemy. And when you do have to go at them, you've got a flying start. Whereas they have to come up. Right? So, in this scenario, right, the 10,000 men, freshly raised, relatively green. Presumably, relatively green. 900 chariots and an entire army led under Sisera, who, let's, for the sake of this, assume is quite experienced. Um, the only thing really in Barak's favour, aside from the fact he had God on his side, was that he had the high ground. <laughs> right? And, 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 and he had that. And so, being emboldened with the confidence of God, right, Barak went down the mountain with 10,000 men following him. Gave up the high ground. The high ground represented his natural advantage. Yeah. Okay? Sisera's chariots represented his natural advantage. Yeah. God is bigger than our natural advantages and abilities. That's yeah. right. So, so, so Barak went down the mountain, and then it says the rest is tied up pretty neatly. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariots the symbol of his strength, the symbol of the oppression of Israel, and fled on foot. Right? The idea of that, like, if you have a chariot, generally they're fast, generally they're robust. So if you have an opportunity to run away, if you're required to run away, being in the chariot's not a bad place to be. Yet something went wrong for Sisera. God went right for Barak. <laughs> right? And so, chariots no good. Had to flee on foot. Had to flee on foot. So, emboldened with the confidence of God, the natural advantages and the natural obstacles become reduced to insignificance. And we press on. We advance. And God, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. Causes the obstacles that are in front of us, symbols of our impression, to be routed by God, be destroyed by God, and flee. I, I, I think this is absolutely fascinating. I, it almost speaks to the, you know, you'd sit here and go, like, this is just, this blows my mind that you would give up an actual advantage. Yet right the way throughout Israel's history, God had to found themselves in situations where God was saying, hey, trust not in your natural advantages, in your resources. Trust in me. Mm -hmm. it, you know, we, we turn over a few pages and we get to Gideon, who's like 10,000 men and whittled down, whittled down, whittled down, 300 men. And, and, and has a great victory with 300 men. And I have heard all sorts of sermons talk, uh, spoken about Gideon. Including things, references to, ah, well, he was just whittling it down to the best, and, you know, people who went to the, um, the water and did this, and they were more alert, and all of those sorts of things like that. Uh, can I give my, my frank opinion on that? I think the point was that the battle was God's. The victory was God's, right? And Gideon could have gone into battle with, with um, two guys and a hamster, mm -hmm. and the victory still would have been God. It wasn't about the quality of the people, mm -hmm. it wasn't about raising up people, because the reality is if you have 300 really great guys, that's fantastic. 
you put them in charge of the rest of the 10,000 because bods on the ground is a desirable thing in war. <laughs> but when God enters the equation, the natural reality is not reality anymore. It's a spiritual reality. That's good. And God can do so much more with 300 men seemingly randomly chosen. Not predicated on their abilities, on their backgrounds, on their skills and things like that. And he can create a great victory. And the glory rests with him in that victory. So, having placed ourselves in proximity to God's wisdom, having rested in his strength, not in our own, and having realized that our natural advantages don't mean much when we rest in God and are willing to give him the credit for our victories, right? We can proceed, start to slay the giants in our life, to start to overcome the chariots of iron that seem as obstacles in front of us. So I, I just really want to uh, close in prayer with this. I think if we, if we did a straw poll around the room and said, you know, who's, who's facing a battle at the moment, uh, everybody puts their hands up. Um, that's just the reality of life. We have battles that are big, we have battles that are small, it's hard to compare. Mm. And I understand your battles, I won't pretend to, and I don't think I could if I tried and spent many, many years with you. But you have to understand that we are uh, a church that serves a God who's not only capable of understanding every battle you're going through, but is capable of understanding the outcome. It's capable of understanding your past. It's capable of literally just bundling everything concerned with that and you into one ball and being aware of it all at one time. And, and so I just want to pray, as we do now, just to close, I just want to pray that, that, that we would start to be emboldened in the battlefields of our world through our proximity to God. So right now, God, we lift you up. We praise you, Lord God. We give you all of the glory and all of the honor in our world. Yes, Lord. Lord, we just lift you up and we say, firstly, Father God, bring wisdom into our world. Bring your wisdom into our world so that we can see things not through the distorted lens of our own natural perception of God, but we can start to see things as you see them. We can start to be empowered in situations as we view things through your eyes and not through the smallness of our own thinking, Father God. Lord, that you would just grant us wisdom, Father, that you would empower us, that we would be close to you, Lord God, and know your heart in different situations, Father. And right now, God, that you would strengthen us and give us, give us peace in the battlefields of our world, Lord God, that you would give us a sense of joy in the midst of conflict, Father God, because we know that you have gone before us and that what we are going through is ultimately for your glory, Father God. And right now, I just thank you, God, that you strengthen us, Lord God, far beyond our own natural abilities, far beyond our own abilities to, to handle things in our strength, Father God. You go so much more. And we praise you, Father God, as we rest in your strength, as we seek your wisdom, Father God, as ultimately, Lord God, we live our lives as a testimony to your glory, Lord God, to your credit, Father God, and to your strength and love and mercy, Father God. In your precious name.